This is a podcast from ABC Overnights. Here's Trevor Chappell. As we profile T.S. Eliot on the program this morning, we're joined by Professor Robert Crawford, who's an emeritus professor of poetry at the University of St Andrews. His latest work is called Eliot After the Wasteland, which is due to be released in Australia later on this month. Hello, Robert. Hi. Hello, Trevor. Hey, Robert. Before we talk about Eliot, can you give us an example of his poetry for people who may not be aware of it and what it sounds like? Sure. Here, here's 13 lines from The Wasteland, from the last part of the poem. What I love about Eliot is his ear for the sound of words. If there were water and no rock, if there were rock and also water and water, a spring pool among the rock, if there were the sound of water only, not the cicada and dry grass singing, but sound of water over a rock, where the hermit thrush sings in the pine trees, drip, drop, drip, drop. You know, as a person that isn't aware of a lot of poetry, Robert, and who hasn't read very much of T.S. Eliot, before I started this, before the conversation, I was find out we were talking about The Wasteland. I read half of The Wasteland, and I was fascinated reading it, and it was almost like looking at a graphic novel and going through pages of a graphic novel, but not quite knowing what was going on, but having these incredible images of what was going on, but wanting to know more about the story itself. Yeah, it's an incredible soundscape too, a soundscape that ranges from very simple language like the title, The Wasteland, or like that bit that I just read out, which is in very, very plain English, English, to, to other passages that bring in foreign languages, even bits of Sanskrit, uh, and just sound very, very weird uh, if you're an English speaker. Yeah. Uh, the poem ranges all over the place, and it shakes you up. Even a hundred years after it was written, I think it still shakes you up. Uh, and you can hear, as I hope you heard in that wee bit that I read there, a, a, a music of intense despair that recurs in the poem. And there's a there's a ten, there's a tension there as well. Yeah, yeah, but there is throughout the sense of waste. If that's the case, is it important to know the story behind the poem and what's happening in his life to truly understand it? I think often when you hear the poem, particularly when you hear it aloud, you, you sense this intensity that's there in it. Um, and this kind of despairing music. And so it, it, it does help, if only because it confirms your own intuitions, um, to know a little bit about what was going on in Eliot's life, uh, because it's a kind of cry from the heart in some ways, though it's also a poem um, published in 1922 uh, that people often see as kind of summing up the waste of uh, World War I uh, and, and the rather of the Spanish flu pandemic afterwards, um, which had killed millions of people. Um, so so there's, there's a sense of kind of um, 
guess and gloom that pervades the poem, which is partly personal and uh, partly societal, I think. So in that case, is it if you were to do that, to, to analyse the poem and take a look at what is happening in his life and what's happening within the country, is it better to read the book and the poetry first and then take a look at what was happening or vice versa? I, I, I think the truth is you read the poem aloud to yourself, first of all, yeah, and you, you hear this weird acoustic. And, and often you'll find yourself asking, what on earth is that? What's going on there? Um, it probably helps to know that um, by the time he wrote the poem, uh, when he was in his early 30s, uh, he realized that he'd made a disastrous marriage. He'd basically married the wrong woman. Uh, he was uh, an immigrant. Uh, he, he'd grown up in America, but by this time he was living in England and he missed his family and he missed aspects of America intensely, though he was excited by literary London uh, and he'd realised not only that he'd married the wrong person but that he was still in love with um, his uh, sweetheart back in America, though it seemed too late to do anything about that um, and, and one of the, the interesting things um, for me as, as, as his biographer was having access to, to his over a thousand letters that he wrote to this woman, Emily Hale, uh, with whom he was still in love in America. Um, it, it was a relationship that lasted over 50 years, uh, though it was never consummated. Um, and uh, when you read these letters, and I quote quite a lot of them in the book, you, you realize how intensely emotional a person Eliot was, though often people think of him very much as a kind of cold intellectual. He was very clever, he was very intelligent, uh, but he was also very intense uh, and emotional. And that's what you hear in the poetry. Is that what you're wanting to do within your book, is to take a look at the person more than analysing the poetry, because that's been done a fair bit as well? Yeah, well, I was writing a biography. I wasn't writing a critical book. Um, but, but I was wanting to give a sense of, of, of where some of Eliot's poetry um, came from, uh, and sometimes perhaps of how frustrated he could become um, when he realised that people just didn't quite understand what he was like under this rather shy, rather formal demeanour um, that he had. He, here's a little snatch um, from one of his letters to Emily Hale. There will be so much in existence to give a very false impression of me and so few clues to the truth. Can I make clear to you my feeling, I wonder? I admit it's egotistic and perhaps selfish, but is it not natural when one has had to live in a mask all one's life to be able to hope that someday people can know the truth if they want it? And he goes on to talk about how often he meets people and he can see the impression he's made on them. And he wants to say, no, no, you're all wrong. It's like this. But um, because of these disasters in his personal life, he just feels unable to blurt it out. So why was it that there was that impression that he lived behind a mask? Because if he's frustrated by the fact that people feel that way about him, why is it that they felt that way? Well, to some extent, I think he's trying to keep up appearances. Um, he, he's, he's trying to um, make the best he can out of his marriage to Vivian, uh, his wife, uh, who eventually goes mad um, and, and was clearly a, an extremely difficult person to live with. I think Elliot could be difficult to live with as well, but, but Vivian um, 
uh, probably even more so. Uh, and he is trying to um, keep a secret uh, this relationship, which goes on for decades, conducted largely but not exclusively by letter uh, with Emily Hale in America. Uh, em- Emily would come over to England from time to time and Elliot would meet her and he, he also went to the States quite often uh, and he would meet her there uh, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't a relationship that he could make public and he did his best to keep it secret so he, he, he was quite a secretive and elusive individual um, it's no accident that one of his best known poems um, uh, from, from the book that became, uh, that underpins the musical Cats, though Elliot did didn't write the, the poems in that as as um, as a, a musical. Um, one of his best known poems is Macavity, uh, the mystery cat, uh, who seems always elusive and will never be caught. I think Eliot realised that that um, he was a bit like that himself. If he if that was the case though, because poetry is such an emotive medium, how is it that those emotions didn't come out through his poetry? Oh, I think the emotions come out in the poetry. It's just that he's not a confessional poet in the sense that he doesn't give you all the autobiography in the poem, but the emotion comes through. It's sometimes, I think, a mystery to people, though, how there can be so much emotion in the poetry of this man who was often seen as cold and aloof and distant and extremely fastidious. He, he worked um, a lot of his life as a banker, uh, and then he was a publishing director. So he, he's quite formal, um, buttoned up. Um, uh, there was a joke about him um, that was passed on by Virginia Woolf at one point, T.S. Uh, Eliot, in his four-piece suit. So in that case, there, there, are, there are literally, there, there are sort of two sides to it. There's, there's the banker, there's the publisher, there's that image that is very businesslike, and then there's the poetic side as well. Yes. I suppose like most people, he showed different sides of himself to, to different people he met, mm. different people he interacted with, different people he wrote to. He's complicated, um, but a lot of people are complicated, I think, when you get to know them. So I, I, I'm not wanting to at all to suggest that he's weirdly inhuman. <laughs> if anything, through you know writing his books, I'm wanting to, to humanize him, um, to show that he did feel deeply, uh, and, and to, to convince readers that, yeah, we hear that in the poetry. I mean, because it's true. We all have different personas. We all have different sides. But perhaps with poets or people that are involved in those sorts of mediums, there's an expectation that you're something. But this poet shows that we're all just based, we're all the same. Well, uh, I think we all share um, certain um, aspects. And one aspect clearly that was important to Elliot was that he wanted to be loved, mm. not in a kind of easy sense. I, I don't mean that he, he wanted people to think what a great guy he was, um, but, but he wanted um, a, a love relationship. We'll go straight to your calls as we talk with Professor Robert Crawford. Um, Julian, good morning. Good morning. Could you explain the reason why the Elliot estate does not approve of Andrew Lloyd Webber's adaptation of T.S. Eliot into the 1981 Broadway hit, Cats? Uh, Robert? I, I, I don't think you're quite right there, Julian. Um, it, it, the Elliot estate uh, gave permission and worked with uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber to bring that musical uh, into being. I was told that they, there was some controversy about the adaptation 
of that musical into into uh, into the um, basis of the, the stories weren't quite true. Would that be correct? Um, not really. Um, it was Elliot's second wife. Um, when Elliot was um, uh, quite an old man, i.e. about 70, uh, he married his secretary, Valerie. Uh, and Valerie lived until 2012, and it was Valerie who um, gave permission uh, to Andrew Lloyd Webber um, to, to use uh, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats in what became the musical Cats. Um, and she um, yeah, she made lots of money out of this, uh, and I think she was pretty keen on the, the idea of cats. Uh, it, it may seem odd that the poet of the wasteland uh, was also the poet whose work gave rise to cats, but Eliot, who'd grown up in St. Louis, a great city of jazz in the States, uh, all his life was very keen, not just on jazz, but also on music hall, music hall songs. And so I think he might quite have liked the fact that his um, poems for children in Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats had become this hit musical. And certainly the estate did not stand in uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's way. And within that, so you talk about his relationship with his secretary, because we were talking mm-hmm. earlier about his desire to be loved and so forth. Did he yep. achieve that? Did he have that love that he was looking for in his life? At the very end of his life, he did, yes. He, he, he had virtually stopped writing poetry by this stage, um, but uh, he had a very happy marriage for about the last seven years uh, of his life, um, marrying this woman who was about 40 years younger. Um, and she, 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 she I, I met her once or twice, and in interviews she talks about how she thought there was a little boy inside Elliot that's never quite been released. Um, and I, I think she um, brought him um, various kinds of happiness uh, in, in uh, his old age, yeah. Uh, Phil, good morning. Good morning. Uh, forgive the uh, hidden poor. <laughs> Crawford's a famous uh, clan, if I may ask. Um, Braveheart's mother was a Crawford. I'm uh, slightly amused. Um, why cats? You, you probably answered my question, but uh, considering that uh, cats here are, uh, are a menace to wildlife and you have to keep them in after 11 o'clock. I've even got a cat now who wants to get out. Um, Dick Whittington gave uh, approval for cats to roam around the city of London. So wh- why, why did he come up with all these, th- this poetry on cats? His dad was quite keen on cats. Uh, Elliot had a, a drawing of a cat that his father had made. Um, Elliot also, as, as I suggest in the biography and was, was saying a moment ago, uh, is quite an elusive character, uh, quite shy. Uh, I suppose um, you could say there was something feline about Elliot himself. Uh, people found him often kind of hard to pin down, and he knew that. Don't you think cats are sometimes a bit hard to pin down? They, 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 they lead their own, um, sometimes almost inaccessible And when you take it, like when you look at cats as the animal, they um, they slink, they move around, they have communities. They they're not as robust and boundy as dogs, so probably as as much interesting or as interesting to write about. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I think he liked writing about them. I, I think also, he, he, never, he, Elliot, never had any children. 
Um, but I think he would like to have had children. And writing Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats was a way of doing something um, for children, a kind of reaching out to a, a very, very different audience from the originally rather elite audience who read The Wasteland. Um, uh, for the same reason, I think he wanted to write these poems for children as he wanted to write um, for the theatre. Um, from the 1930s onwards, he, he writes plays, perhaps the best known is Murder in the Cathedral. Uh, and I don't think the poetry in them is, is they're all in verse, um, but I don't think the poetry is as intense as the poetry of the Wasteland or his wartime poems in four quartets. Um, but it, it, it's clearly that he wanted to write, reach out to a big audience through the theatre. And although uh, Cats didn't come out until, um, I think, 16 years after Eliot himself was dead, nonetheless, this idea of a popular theatrical success is something very much that he uh, wanted. I text here from Mark and Bendigo who says, Trevor, I've been doing postgraduate research on Eliot and his religious thinking. I'd be interested in your guest thoughts on that. Well, he is a great religious uh, poet. Uh, the Wasteland, although I think ultimately it's a poem of despair, is a poem about searching for some kind of system of values that one can live by. Um, uh, and that desperate search eventually uh, takes Eliot uh, via his poem, The Hollow Men, which very famously ends not with a bang but a whimper. And is also a despairing poem um, but takes him beyond that um, to a, a, a commitment to Christianity. He, he joins the Church of England in 1927, uh, becomes a Christian. He'd grown up in the Unitarian Church in America, but Eliot didn't really regard that as part of the Christian fold. And, and, and quite a lot of his poetry after he joins the Church of England is um, n not evangelical poetry at all it's not happy clappy it, it, it's not kind of easy welcoming poetry but but it is a kind of intense engagement with religious thinking you, you could say perhaps that um, he's he's one of the greatest religious poets of the 20th century uh, um, uh, perhaps the greatest religious poet between Christina Rossetti and, and Les Murray how is it that he goes from studying philosophy and writing poetry into the world of things like banking and publishing? Um, his dad had run a successful, a very successful brick company in St. Louis. So he came from quite a well, T.S. Eliot came from quite a well-off background and a business background. Um, and he, when he moved to England, he was quite lucky in his contacts. Um, he knew various people in the Bloomsbury Group, um, including Maynard Keynes, the economist who uh, did work for the Bank of England. And so Elliot eventually uh, gets, uh, through a friend, gets a job with um, Lloyd's Bank uh, in the city of London and is taken on to look after um, work that involves a lot of translation activities. He knew quite a number of languages. So he was fairly um, versed in business in terms of his background, though not, you're quite right, not in terms of his postgraduate work in philosophy. 
but the, but the, it was that experience in banking, um, as much as anything else, that got him his job in publishing because he was really hired to work for the, the, the what became the, the firm of Faber and Faber in London, um, not only because he had great literary contacts, but because he had a sound financial head. And he kind of liked dressing as a banker. And people <laughs> complained sometimes when they met him that he didn't seem like a poet, he seemed like an accountant. It was, if you like, another of his masks. Um, George, hello. G'day, Trevor, and uh, g'day, uh, Robert. It's wonderful to hear uh, your wonderful Scottish brogue reciting uh, the great uh, master's work. Uh, but I actually uh, became introduced to Elliot in a, in a quite unusual way. I was in a youth theatre group uh, in my late teens, and uh, in the studio next door was a, a, an adult group rehearsing another piece, and it was actually... Uh, a collection of Eliot's poetry that uh, this director had uh, sort of put together from a whole bunch of different Eliot poems uh, under the wonderful title An Evening with T.S. Eliot, Light Refreshments Will Be Served. Uh, but it was in the height of the, the, height of the punk era in the late 70s, and he'd taken Eliot and, and taken it out of that you know, sort of musty kind of Oxford sort of uh, dry literary can in some ways and just created this incredible performance poetry piece. I mean, they had sort of images. It was actually performed in a church with a kind of big pul- pulpit, and uh, on the face of the pulpit they'd stuck up a big uh, photo of Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols with... Uh, <laughs> brass tacks in his eyes <laughs> incredible demonic image and uh, reciting all this uh, wonderful earlier poetry but in a kind of creating this kind of um, almost post-apocalyptic narrative that by, by stringing together different uh, poems but yeah I, I actually was amazed to find out that he'd actually come from America originally and that was only many years later because I, I, he sounded so British to me And uh, but uh, what, what I wanted to ask you was about that theatrical side of him because he did actually write a number of plays, including famous ones like Murder in the Cathedral, which is about the death of Thomas Beckett, all that was done all in verse. Yep. But uh, there seems to be that this this idea with with cats that people are scratching their heads about. It seems to me that his his poetry has uh, a wonderful theatrical bent to it. I mean, I, I, many years later, I saw a production of The Wasteland done, where uh, again, uh, you know, which, so it, it's been done many, in many different ways. I just wanted you to comment on uh, his relationship to the theatre. I think you're absolutely right, um, and he's clearly interested in the theatre from his early childhood onwards. Uh, the Wasteland was originally entitled by Eliot, who, who was quoting a little bit of a Charles Dickens novel, uh, it was originally entitled He Do the Police in Different Voices, and it's a poem that is still very, very weird to hear because there seem to be so many different voices in the poem and sometimes we can't quite tell whose they are and they speak over each other, they interfere with each other, um, they speak in different dialects and even different languages. In a way that helps it become a kind of world poem um, and the wasteland is not one particular territory, it's a kind of psychological territory inhabited by lots and lots of different speakers. Um, that sense of multiple voices, I think, fed into his wish to um, put different characters in dialogue with each other onto the stage. We should point out that, and at this stage that when we're, to, we're talking about poetry and we're talking about very long-form poetry, was he influenced by Shakespeare? 
Uh, he loved Shakespeare. He knew lots and lots of Shakespeare. Um, uh, funnily enough, in, in, in the wasteland, as, as you maybe remember, uh, there's a line, oh, 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 that Shakespeareian rag, it's so elegant, so intelligent. And what he's doing there is, is kind of fusing Shakespeare with the, with the jazz age. Um, uh, but he knows his Shakespeare. Um, he alludes to Shakespeare um, several times, including in one of his most beautiful, many times, including one of his most beautiful poems, Marina, um, which refers to Shakespeare's Pericles, where a daughter seems to have been lost and drowned, but then miraculously reappears. Um, I, I think he had a very deep knowledge of Shakespeare, and, and, and just his ear and his head were full of, of tags of Shakespeare. Uh, though when it came to writing drama for himself, of course, he thought that Shakespeare was the curse of English drama, um, because if you if you wanted to do anything new in drama, you had to make it sound un-Shakespearean, mm. otherwise it just kind of was completely overshadowed by Shakespeare. So Eliot often went to ancient Greek drama to kind of pattern his plays. And did he stay away from doing the same sorts of rhythms as Shakespeare as well, with the iambic pentameter and that sort of thing? <laughs> Yeah, he has a sense of the iambic pentameter, but a lot of his um, poetry, not all of it, but a lot of it is written in free verse. Um, so there is a strong sense of, of rhythm there, uh, but it's not pentametric. Barry joins us. Hello, Barry. Uh, good morning, Professor. Uh, look, I became a great fan of uh, T.S. Eliot doing that HSC back in 1968, and particularly with... Uh, uh, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock and Rhapsody on Windy yeah. Night. Could you perhaps uh, give us some background as to the the famous J. Alfred Prufrock and maybe Win- uh, Rhapsody on Windy Night, which became a song as well? Yeah. Well, well, well what's amazing about um, G- the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock is that um, he, 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 he writes the poem when he's about 21. So it, it, it's just an astonishingly mature work. It's a poem that really kicks off in some ways in, in English, at least, what we think of as, as literary modernism. Um, and he's written it in America. Well, he, he's written it partly in Paris and partly in Munich. Uh, it, it, he had this kind of year abroad um, uh, when he was a student at Harvard. He went to Paris for a year in 1910 to 11 um, and, and writes most of the writes the poem in Europe, though it's not published for um, is not published for um, four or five years after that, and it doesn't come out in, in his first book until 1917. So there's a big delay between his writing it um, and his publishing it. When he first tries to publish it, as you maybe know, some people think it's mad, it's just kind of crazy. Um, it's that poem, in, in case some listeners uh, can't quite call it to mind, it's, it's a poem that begins, Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. And there's a kind of shock in them, in that image of a patient etherized upon a table, somehow being compared to, to, to an evening sky. Um, people just thought it was crazy. Uh, but I think most folk, when they hear it, can't afterwards get it out of their heads. Um, it, it's a poem of unpredictable rhymes. Uh, the word 
table in patient etherized my table there's never a rhyme comes to 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 rhyme with table but i and sky and streets and retreats and hotels and shells the the other um end end of line words uh, in the first um part of the poem all have rhymes so it both kind of leads your ear to expect certain things and then at other moments absolutely throws you and that's the way Eliot's poetry tends to work um, generally. When you take a look at his life, when did he start to be recognised and who was it that recognised him in the beginning? A small number of people recognise that first book, Prufrock and Other Observations, when it comes out in 1917. But of course the war is still going on uh, and these poems aren't war poetry at all. They're kind of rather, it's a rather odd book to come out late in, in World War I. Uh, Catherine Mansfield um, uh, meets Eliot and, and uh, falls in love with the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Uh, uh, members of the Bloomsbury group, including Virginia Woolf, are very impressed uh, by Eliot's first book. Uh, it's Woolf who be- uh, and her husband Leonard Woolf uh, who become the um, first publishers of the Wasteland as a book in England. Um, so, so these kind of avant-garde London literary figures uh, admire what's going on. Uh, but 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 it takes some time uh, for Eliot's poetry to acquire a mass audience. It just sounds so weird, so new, and so difficult that a lot of people just don't know what to make of it. There's also probably among in some quarters kind of resentment in England that he's this upstart American immigrant poet. Um, so he doesn't always have it easy. Do you, have you got more to write about Elliot in that this is the second book? Have you got more to go? <laughs> um, I don't think I'm going to write another book about Elliot, but I probably haven't said the last word. Um, <laughs> what is it you personally like about his work? As a poet yourself, what is it that you like about his work the most? It's the ear for language. Uh, it's just an absolutely remarkably astute and acute ear for the music of words. Um, what, what he himself called uh, the auditory imagination, uh, he kind of presents this as going down into the kind of very depths of the mind and the consciousness. Uh, and when I read his poetry, especially when I read it aloud, I feel it doing that to me uh, in a way that very, very few um, poets manage. Uh, so to me, I'm just kind of constantly astonished by him. He's, he, he remains a master. Uh, and that's why, in the long run, um, his, his, his influence has extended not just throughout the English-speaking world, but to, um, to, to China, to South America, across Europe. I, he, he is, in some ways, the most um, significant 20th century poet, I think, globally. Which is the great place for us to finish. Thank you for joining us on the program.